Welcome to For Instance Podcast, the tech podcast where we spin out endless supposals about cloud, AI, the edge, and more. We sift through current events, opine about what it means for practitioners and leaders, and interview industry observers about where different technologies are taking us. If you like digging into the story behind the story in tech, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for episode three of For Instance Podcast. I'm Sarah Music, and Sarbjeet Joal is with me today. And we have a packed day today because there's a lot going in. But we first wanted to start out discussing VMware Explore because Sarbjeet is fresh back from um, Explore. So lots of announcements, some really interesting movement some broader indications for the industry. So Sarbjeet, we'd love to hear your thoughts about Explore. Uh, so first off, just generally speaking, how was the event? How did you find it this year? Uh, hi, Sarah. Um, yeah, um, thanks for the, the intro today. Yeah, this is our episode three. Uh, we're talking along. And yeah, at VMware, the show was great, I think. Like it was better than I expected. Normally that show happens in San Francisco, but this year it was in uh, Las Vegas, right? So venue was a little too big for the show because the expo floor at Venetian is huge. Mm -hmm. it, it can hold, hold you know, uh, reinvent like uh, event. But here I think maybe seven to 9,000, somewhere in between people, but still a big gathering, energetic. And um, as you know, VMware's practitioners are very enth enthusiastic. Um, VMUG, their uh, community is huge. I think it's 150,000 plus or so, like that, the training wow. um, was wide. Like they did, they showcased the training in the open area. It was like crazy displays, if you will, of uh, people just uh, playing with new, new software, new stack. Uh, learning um, instructors, instructing them. There were seven um, sections in one area and two theaters. So a lot of, like, you know, a lot of uh, uh, people learning. While Expo was great, uh, at Expo, there was some oddity, you know, there was odd a little bit. Like the, the partners, the bigger partners, were kind of a little milder in their, their uh, posture, looked like it. And uh, also, um, Rob uh, Strache, uh, for, he is um, a host on, on the Cube now. He mentioned that from, I think, 150 different courses which are being taught there, only five were from partners. So and for some reason, wow. the partners were kind of a little, um, like a little bit, uh, maybe they downplayed it or maybe the, the cost was too much for them to come in or there was change. I, I don't know what the reason was, but, but that was one observation. Um, all in all, it was great actually. The keynote was very crisp. It was like 58 minutes and they said it's well orchestrated. It was well orchestrated. And um, they they said what they needed to say about generative AI, about their existing stack, about you know NYSERA network piece, about their uh, storage, you know, advancements, and they're, they're working on that part of the um, infrastructure as code, if you will. And uh, of course, they 
are known for virtualizing compute, right? So yeah, all in all, it was great. And Tanzu, they're pushing Tanzu to go left to our, towards developers. Yeah. Yeah. And, I uh, noticed that. Can we unpack that a little bit more? I mean, they there was discussion of you know, forecasting and baking cloud health into that, which that's a whole discussion, of course, because fairly popular in the industry, although some folks have a mixed feeling about it. Um, and then uh, the new app engine, you know, of course, again, you mentioned developers, the developer portal. I mean, they were they were rolling out a lot and it seems like they wanted to own the narrative. They wanted to make very clear who the show was about. So I'd yeah. love to hear more about your thoughts about the developer angle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we just jump in and develop angle at high level, mm -hmm. the other big, you know, piece is the acquisition people. I think a lot of people came for that reason as well to senior execs, especially to listen to the narrative around the acquisition. It's, it's about to go through, uh, there was news actually during the show. Um, Dave Vellante told me that uh, because U.S. regulators, Lena Khan's, you know, FTC you know, organization, they couldn't work on this in in time. But because of that, it, it by default gets approved. So if if oh, wow. FTC can't work within certain time, then deal is is considered approved. So it, it's it's I mean, pretty upside down from. <laughs> the way it goes in some other places, not to name yeah. names, but yeah, interesting. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, so um, Hoktan did not speak on the stage, but they did, uh, played his video, you know? So Raghu, the CEO of uh, VMware came in and they started playing that video first. Before that that video actually, the, you know, during the kickoff, there were CEO of Microsoft, Google people, uh, you know, a lot of cloud providers and a lot of other partners from Dell to HPE. There were there, there were a lot of videos playing about the, the need for figuring out generative AI. How do we tackle it? And, you know, so there was like a lot of pumping up of the crowd and all of a sudden um, uh, they played the video from Hawk Tan and he assured the market and practitioners and decision makers that they will invest the extra $2 billion just after the acquisition uh, completes. And $1 billion of those $2 billion will uh, go into R&D loan. So I, I, I wow. think that was a good message. Uh, of course, like, you know, they are going to spend that $2 billion over some time. They didn't say over five years or two years. So that, you know how that goes, you know. So, um, but that was assurance, I think, much needed assurance. Uh, given to the market, you know. So going into the developer piece, I sat down with uh, Barry Junot. She's a senior VP of uh, Tanzu Marketing. Um, her title is different: mo modernizing applications uh, stack, business unit, you know, something like that. She's a v VP of that. But but all in all, she focuses on the Tanzu messaging. Uh, I sat down with her. Uh, at the expo floor and we recorded a video which will which will come out ne next week we, we covered the economics of it the developer angle how open the tanzu is can people plug in can open source play a role in it um, so the way she pitches it and and we have seen some of the collateral in 
and information coming out of VMware. It is very modular system. So partners can play in it as from the technology side. So architecturally, it's very modular system. You can plug in different things in the in the development tool chain and the DevOps tool chain, you know, so you can bring in whatever your tooling, whatever you are used to in an enterprise, right? including a uh, few open uh, source projects, which are like, a, you know how that goes. Some of the, the plugins are better than others. Some are very like well orchestrated plugins. Some are like, okay, only one touch point, you know, so some just do checkbox. But mm-hmm. I think the, the the market will tell, but few pl- plugins she mentioned from uh, uh, backstage were, was one of them from open source. Um, that that that's very popular according to her, for example, right? So that means open source is engaged. That means the partners are engaged, SIs are engaged. So they they're, they're trying their best to engage different stakeholders and. Um, yeah, from the openness point of view, is it like how open it is because of the modular design? Um, she she said it's open. I, I call it hybrid design. It's like you know you can it's open but also proprietary. So the core components right. coming from VMware and then you can tack on more stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, uh, so we talked about economics. Uh, I think we can get more color from the discussion there. She described the pricing and the premium model and a few, few other things there. My, my goal was to get the information, but how do you, how will you entice new people to this platform, right? So um, knowing VMware, it's kind of considered as a brownfield, you know, vendor, right? Yes. So if, if you are starting some new company, it's very highly unlikely that you will pick VMware, right, to start <laughs> anything new. But uh, for existing enterprises, they are pervasive, just like Microsoft is. Um, so they are going left towards the developer. And my and I also sat down with uh, we recorded the video, uh, my video with the CTO of VMware, uh, Kit Cobalt, um, and that was a great discussion actually. I hope they don't censor some of it. It was <laughs> some tough questions in there. I I had like, how do you, how do you like? I asked like, okay, your your partners, your best partners, Dell and HPE, have started their own, you know, cloud operating system kind of story, right? So Apex, uh, Dell, and um, Green Lake at HPE. That's uh, right. They will start competing. We know that it's very, you know, malnutrition stuff they have it's very basic it's just storage focused right now but they are trying to trying to in a way send the message that hey we have some automation in our world as well um but yeah he he said it like he's not concerned like i, I won't say much about it but then uh, we will we'll see what comes out of that uh, because I I will I will run that video by them and because some questions like were very blunt and sometimes like that information can't get out so that was that and then uh, I also uh, pivoting a little bit but finishing the VMware we will mm. go into the news for for last ten twelve days. Um, I sat down with uh, Dave Vellante on on the Cube uh, four o'clock yesterday. And um, that was a great discussion. 
we just riffed five minutes before the cameras were rolling. Like he said, Sarvji, what do you want to talk about? And oh, off the cuff, uh, I was thinking along this while, while, while I was walking the floors of uh, the show and talking to other people that there's a big tight, tight tectonic shift happening um, in the computing just under our nose. This, why I say under our nose? Because whatever happens under our nose, we don't notice it. So when change happens, when we are busy doing stuff, we don't notice that change, but it's happening. If you zoom out, you will notice that, oh, I see some change happening, right? So GPU-like facilities, FPGA, GPU, programmable computers coming into the picture. Not only the compute side, there's uh, more compute coming to the network. You know, there mm-hmm. are the, Absolutely. The, it's needed, much needed because if your NIC card can encrypt and decrypt stuff when it goes goes in and out on the fly with the best encryption at high highest speed, you know what big uh, cloud providers do, like AWS and Google, and all, they they have those specialized um, NIC cards, right? Their own designed, right? So Nitro, they call it at AWS, and um, and I, I think compute is under sort of a change i think i so th- the, the yeah the x86 system actually um what vmware is known for virtualizing uh, to start with right way back you know almost uh, 24 25 years back um that is um under under attack or it, it's it, it's uh being questioned like can you use there this questions. For, the next, yep. for the next next wave of computing right and yeah, I think that that discussion went into like, oh, okay, how how the chip makers are making money, and then I I also I have also I always loved one liners. I said we are going from multi cloud to multi chip world, right? So you will be using different kind of chips from different kind of vendors, some homegrown chips for big, of course, like big customers. Even customers can create their own chips because you know you can get hold of a design. That's right. Yeah. A chiplet. Yeah. More of a chiplet architecture. And then you can, you know, essentially design your way into something that's best fit for your organization. That's right. Yeah. Apple was a customer of, uh, uh, Broadcom and uh, others, you know, like Qualcomm and other, and, and, and Intel, and they gradually, you know, got in that shedding that, and then they're building their own chips, for example, just, that's just one example, right? And cloud providers are another example. They were a customer of other chip makers, and now they are making their own. So, yeah, it's it's a multi-chip um, world, and um, it's just a, a lot of uh, change happening at the same time. So um, what else did we cover? Oh, yeah, we covered multi-cloud uh, in that discussion. Tanzu, we talked about that, what, what we just finished talking, the, the discussion with Betty Junod, um, how they are approaching multi-cloud and going left, you know. So yeah, it's um, people are uncertain from the VMware employee point point of view, um, employees side. You know, they are kind of less scared. I mean, like any other company yeah. would be after acquisition. Yeah, I could see that. And given the complexion of the market. Uh, the numbers are so consistent 
quarter over quarter as far as workloads continuing to move to the tier one hyperscalers. And there are workloads that are coming back, but the the main stampede is not into a traditional virtualized environment. So I could see I could see why that would be a little unnerving. Although given, you know, some of the work that they're doing with Tanzu and other things, I think they're far from done. I think there's a lot to be said. And the vibe I got, and this was at a distance just looking at the material, was that there was a sense of mojo. So there is there is um, some concern, but they kind of came out with some confidence, I think, owning the, the stage and the floor like they did and not having a lot of partner conversation. That makes a statement, uh, you know, as yeah. somebody who's watching from the periphery. So That's really... Yeah, really interesting. That's a great, actually, observation. I think nobody has uh, said it that way. That's a, that's a good observation that they, they they made a statement by not including the traditional um, partners, bringing them on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, having said that for VMware, uh, big, big news cycle. India's landing on the moon. So yeah. cool. I wanted, I wanted us to at least tip a hat to that before we talk about some of the other things, because I think it's really tremendous. I think, you know, we know that technologists, as much as anybody, uh, powered that sort of titanic size initiative, just really massive undertaking. Um, so it's a real tribute to the both the work and the talent. I think it's, it's very cool. It's crazy. It, it, it's crazy, actually. Um what they they have pulled off um, just uh, after Russia failed the landing, um, just within like days, you know, like within uh, three four days after that, India landed it um, on the dark side of the moon. The <laughs> like South Pole, yeah, the South Pole. That's right. <laughs> Pole, yeah. um, and it, it, it's uh, I think it's a great achievement. Um, I was talking to my wife uh, yesterday evening and. We were talking about this, like, it's not that it will give you something immediately, there's no, like, it's not going to provide food to, you know, poor people or, or, or cure cancer, but what it gives you um, as a nation, a boost to everybody who's part of the nation, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it pumps you up that we belong to a group of people which can do this. That means we can do this. We did it, you know, like when U.S. did that, like, that's how that moment was, you know, in um, back then, 69, I think. So, yeah, it, it, it just, um, it's a big boost to scientists all over the world, but definitely in India. And uh, I hope it will stop some of the brain drain um, on, on some fronts. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, this is tangentially related, but a lot of people don't realize, and I grew up in a, a town with, uh, from an aerospace perspective, a fair amount going on the relationship between aeronautical engineering and like aerospace engineering and medicine is closer than people realize and there are actually a lot of people who start out in in aerospace knowing from an engineering technological perspective they may end up in med tech uh so who knows you know some of the some of the discoveries that you know in the state certainly that i've heard about in the past actually started out um, as NASA initiative. So who knows, who knows what might come out of this, um, yeah, for India, exactly. which is pretty cool. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last time they they actually roamed around that pole, you know, South Pole, and they couldn't land. And then they said they saw like there's this there are signs there's water on that side of frozen water. We'll see now, and I think they're going to make that rover go around only for a week or so. Uh, and then they will get the footage and all that. So we'll we'll see. Hopefully, there's water there. But regardless, it's it's. Uh, I think it's uh, it's great. You know, another great thing is that uh, in India there's a word called jugard, right? Jugard means a hack in English. So in India, people can put together stuff very cheaply to make it work. To you know, move people from this place to that. You know, they can make their own. You know, handmade cars and there's all kind of stuff you will see when you go to India. Anybody who has gone to India, they can relate to it, maybe. So um, they just spent seventy-four, around $74 million for the whole, this mission, this, you know, going to the moon, this, this part. So this is, that's like so cheap, you know. Yeah, it actually is. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's wild. It's like one, they said this is less than, less than half of uh, a Boeing 747 or something. I don't know. Well, they were saying, putting the reference out there. But anyways, very um, like a hacky approach, very creative. And I mean, scientists, like people who love their their craft, you know, they, they just work on these things day in, day out, you know. Congratulations um, to India and all the Indians. Yes, indeed. All over the world as well. So uh, there's quite a bit uh, in the way of other news. Uh, Some of the things that come to mind for me are part and partial a little bit with what we've talked about with VMware. It's rather tidy with how it ties in NVIDIA's earnings. NVIDIA, it turns out it's not just hype. The numbers numbers proved out this quarter, uh, you know, that the, the growth is real and sustained. So what... What are your thoughts there? Yeah, Nvidia is fi- firing on all cylinders, and everybody's trying to like hoard um, these uh, GPUs. Like, even if they don't need it right now, they are buying it. You know, mm-hmm. so they think there will be a shortage of it. You know, so it, it, I, you know chips more than I do, perhaps. You know, like, but what I know is that it's very seasonal kind of business. You know, like um, when you when you hear there's a supply shortage, then all of a sudden there's a supply glut. You know, so um, there's a fear in the market that you know after okay, after you acquire all this compute, you do you could do something with it, right? So which is mostly training the models, but for but if you double click on even just only generative AI, you know, forget about the other types of AI which needs less, you know, GPU. Uh, per se, uh, more or less, right? Um, we can always like debate that part. But in large language models, in generative AI, for training, you most probably need GPUs. If you, and also there's another if, if you have a lot more parameters in the model, like that's right, hundreds of thousands or millions or hundreds of millions, right? But if you have only like two hundred, you can still train that using a normal CPU. Having said that, so like that's one thing, like training the model is one thing. And then I think we, we talked last time too, that the, what the whole idea behind training these models is that we're going to compress the knowledge into smaller data, right? And then we will call APIs to get the information from that smaller, totally compressed data, which is stored in vector sort of format, vector databases, right? 
so the proximity of sentence to sentence word to word and context to context and all that stuff right mm -hmm. so um in that uh, the streamlining of ai um or um what like how how we uh, stop the hallucination that is also stored in the vector databases so so it refers to it on the on, on the fly when you when you do inference so for that you need a lot less compute uh, that's what my understanding is and most of the i said this you know you know i, I this is how i feel as a developer you know um, i've done a lot of development so at the end of the day it's an api call the inference is an api call at the end of the day so there's a server part is the inference engine, right? So that, okay, now we have to think through like, what will that use CPU or GPU or what kind of GPU, how many GPUs, right? You need for inference on the server side, on the client side, which is a big part of that. So to create the prompt or to create the request for that API, to put the parameters into that function, right? That's how the APIs work. And that's actually when we go to uh, chat GPT 4 or 3.5 when we type it does that behind the scenes right so it you need logic to construct these prompts within code you know when you're writing b2b applications they're not going to be like you type this and it, it gives you that you know like these these are hopefully going to be transactional applications like closer to systems of record if you will at some point so we will need I think we will need a lot more developers understanding how to how to code to that how to call these apis it, for them actually more or less they're going to be similar api just you call another api the rest api you call this one right you need to know what to do when once you get the results back how do you display it you play a sound or you play a video or you um give a report back to the end user and so forth so so that, uh, yeah Coming back now, um, um, application is the king. Even chat GPT is an application. If you if you talk to any experts in 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 uh, uh, you know this area, they will tell you chat GPT is not a large language model. It's an application. It a uses fully baked the, service. Yeah. yeah, it's a service. So um, just keeping that in mind, whatever we cook in B two B, these are going to be applications, and we're not getting out of you know coding anytime soon no. um, yeah like I, well I yeah a lot of what you know i've i've heard some thought that the traditional developer so-called would go away only because the new the, the new developer would be taking on new capacities in other words by default they would be both an application developer and an ai developer so in other words have some kind of machine learning capacity just because it's going to be so ubiquitous which yeah. from a compute perspective and then of course from us you know a semiconductor perspective that begs all sorts of questions and i think those are really really interesting to ferret out um if let, we let, yeah go ahead, go ahead finish, finish your talk yeah finish. i was gonna i was gonna circle back to uh, Nvidia a little but a little more tightly only because from from the immediate perspective in the hyperscalers in particular you know given my interest being in cloud I think it's important to point out that some of the the issues with supply from a GPU perspective like an h100 a100 they they're not immune 
to some of the issues that, you know, the traditional enterprise are, you know, they're big and they have a lot of buying power to throw, throw around. Uh, But I think, uh, you know, folks will need to kind of fasten the seatbelt for issues in that regard, because, you know, it may make it harder to get what you want, where you want it, um, you know, depending on the region and, and, you know, when you want, because, you know, saying we'll have it for you in a couple of quarters and that's when you finally get to get started. That's, that's tough. And I've seen, you know, some of that um, going on, but for NVIDIA and for Jensen, it's a super problem to have. It's a pretty... Yeah, they they're backlog. Back, they have a backlog. You know, mm-hmm. um, it will be very busy for next three to four quarters, right? So they have more demand than supply. So definitely that is true. But at the same time, like uh, what we just talked about, like just reiterating that point that people really don't know how much GPU they will need and where. Yes. So it's so new okay this whole whole domain um generative ai it, it seems like the very small number of people really understand it deep down but everybody else is like um um trying to grapple with this noise uh to find out what what it means and can we use hugging face models versus you know proprietary models and in and, and andy jassy actually uh, that interview was very revealing actually i assume that he's very he's a very smart guy himself but but on top of that he has this you know hundreds of thousands of people maybe not hundreds of tens of thousands of people like feeding him intelligence he's well informed person to make a comment like that he said and i agree with that so there will be not more than you know maybe 10 he said five or six but i said maybe 10 to 20 you know large language models but most of the other models will be smaller right so if you mm-hmm. okay, if you dig deep, actually, I was gonna when I was trying to stop you earlier. This is what what I what I was trying to say that I see the models these these trained models as stores of intelligence. That's what it is, right? So right now we store the data into databases, right? And then we run the reports and we call it BI. You know, so that's how we get intelligence. That's exactly of- right. We're moving toward the new database. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, models being the new database. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Models are going to be new database, but having said that, not all the applications are going to move like very quickly, right? Just parallelly or just move it there. It's just like a cloud, you know, migration to cloud kind of thing. So, like some applications will start moving first, you know, like system of engagement will move first, right? The 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 ticketing systems and and security. Um, personnel can benefit from it they, they can gain productivity knowledge bases and all that stuff right it can help you a lot there but any transactional systems like where we talked about last time as well a little bit that like, systems of record you know your books and you know, financial books and you, you don't want to store the, that in um, large language models. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. even if you can, it's not efficient. Like how will, how often you will train every day you are getting transaction, your McDonald's, you're selling burgers every day. Like you're not gonna train your model every day. So you still need the traditional databases. So these, these models will be augmentation to transactional systems. So um, that's how, how I mm-hmm. see it. So um, the need for uh, traditional hardware will be there for a long time to come, I think. Yeah. And kind of, I want, I 
don't want to spend too much time touching on this. I think it's something that we can spend future future discussions on. Yeah, right. But um, the issue of the models and do we build from scratch? Do we use, you know, something that comes from, you know, do we do we use Llama 2? Do we use, you know, a hugging face model? I've spent most of my career working with the the traditional enterprise. And so they they vary wildly uh, as far as their sophistication is concerned with with both AI and with the cloud. And my hunch, mm-hmm. although it's just that, is that we're going to begin to look at AI modeling the way we look at applications, COTS applications, both in the data center and, the, and in the cloud. And by that, I mean... There are non-differentiated tasks where it is just not worth the, the time for the team to spend building something like that unless you have something distinctly different that you're trying to get out of it. So there's there's no sense in building a CRM when there's Salesforce or an HR you know, platform when you have Workday. Um, and so with a large language model, why build the relationship between, you know, and this is an arbitrary example, but coffee mug and coffee grounds or mug and paper cup, similar, but not identical. You know, those are, you know, things that are not going to be business distinctives. Ultimately, I I do think it behooves organizations to at least, at least look at that, unless there's something really specific that they're, that they're planning to, to do. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think think you said it the best, like last time you said it, it, it is a, crisscross uh, what was the word you used the term uh, like vertical and horizontal no know? right yeah sort of a plaid approach <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Approach. seriously it is because you will use some pre-trained models for, for for fraud detection in credit card industry and visa can use that discover can use that mastercard can use that and um you know so perhaps these are big companies they might train their own but but the second tier players can use it by the way when whenever we talk on all these things like we we usually do broad stroking you know like we think every customer is the same it's not right so the answer is always it depends right so different segments of the market will do different things the top biggest players the biggest bank in u.s biggest sort of top three banks they could cook up their model but you know the bottom you know 80 percent of banks no they will use somebody else's fraud detection sort of mechanisms right so amazon already has pre-trained uh, they call it feature store right rather than calling it model store right and um yeah c3 ai actually was started with that intention to pre-train the models for different verticals for different things uh for ticketing systems for for fraud detection for fraud detection in credit card fraud detection in insurance and so forth right because those problems are well defined um yeah you're so right and if you don't if you're not building a system of differentiation then um then you don't need to cook it up so yeah don't be a waste but people do actually anyways like we know that people people still try to reinvent the wheel and later say oh my god we should have used that thing you know so Yeah. yeah well having said that um so you know a lot of interesting threads coming out of the continuing nvidia story sort of on the other side of the coin while you know, NVIDIA has the the party hats out, so to speak. Uh, Intel 
taking a step back uh, with the tower acquisition falling through, uh, you know, before we started recording, you know, some questions about given all of this, this meta narrative that's starting to emerge as far as the new the new rush, as far as AI is concerned, new rush, you know, from a semiconductor perspective, because obviously those workloads will always have to run on something. How much do we care about the tower acquisition falling through on a, on a scale of one to, you know, catastrophic? I I've seen people all over the map as far as how they've how they've viewed it. Um, so what do you what do you think, Sarbjeet? On the tower acquisition, I I I think it's serious. It is serious from one angle, uh, from the angle of U.S. trying to get this autonomy from. Taiwan or any other foreign governments or foreign chips made in other countries, right? Or or from companies which originate in other countries, right? So for that reason, it's it's a huge. I think it's a big deal. And, yeah. Right. So it's a it's a kind of blow um, because I think that's why China didn't prove it because when we are pushing China's buttons, running, of course they could push the small little button. You know, it's not really stop Intel from um doing um their creative work and or they can do another acquisition or they can build this function sort of this sort of capability internally right hire those people or the the other means right so it's just um i think um annoyance but it's uh optics of it are not good agreed yeah yeah how do you see how do you yeah i um uh, a couple things. So from a behind the, the curtain perspective, and by that, I mean, what gets less chatter about on, on the street or in, in, you know, analysis. One of the reasons TSMC is a business is uh, able to post the revenue numbers that they are is because they have non what i would call at this point non-differentiated tech sort of commoditized uh chipsets that they're able to crank out with old machinery and they're able to keep the margins high in that way and so it's they're super you know cheap for them to produce but um they you know they're able to to produce a cushion for them in good management situations i would see that as being sort of a a blessing you know in the face of headwinds or, you know, reduced demand, you know, given that client numbers haven't been, uh, from a purchasing perspective, haven't been as high recently. That's, that's what I wonder about for Intel. That kind of concerns me. I think the tower acquisition would have represented a buffer that would have been really useful to Intel in terms of getting to the point where, you know, co-designing and cranking out more commodity um, technology because they were never going to produce their process, like their cutting edge process nodes there. Um, I don't think, but I, that, that aspect of it in terms of building that complete um, basic to super advanced cycle of a full service foundry that puts, that puts the onus even more on you know, some of the more advanced technologies. And I think that's a little more precarious probably than they wanted. Mixed feelings, mixed feelings about it. I don't think it's catastrophic. I don't think it's great, but it'll be interesting to see what the, 
yeah. what the pivot looks like from here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anytime you block another your competitor or another nation from doing something, it, it, is, it hurts them in short term, but it's good for them in long term. You know, mm -hmm. that's how I see it. For It's good for Intel in long term, I think. Um, perhaps and uh, yeah I, it, it, it's a uh, to be honest with you, I, I need to study this a little more like okay why China needs to prove it because it was Israeli company that's why if it was US company then they didn't right so I think right like, yeah I think I think it you know given the bulk of the operations being in China so they may you know I'm sure I think they have to have some presence in China for China to jump in. Yeah. Like, like, well, you can't do business. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to do business. I mean, you could have it signed, but if you can't, yeah. yeah so yeah. yeah, painful, painful though. Uh, it was interesting watching some of the messaging, the public messaging, like on Bloomberg and things like that coming from Pat Gelsinger get progressively, uh, cryptic as the deadline approach, but yeah. Oh yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Sometimes I, um, th this is not this time it was that was not the case. But sometimes like you make a deal, but then later that deal is so expensive that you want to get out of it, and then you are you are praying that somebody denies it, some regulators denies it, and you get out of it. You know. Sometimes. Well, that's fair <laughs> from a cash flow perspective. It could be. It could be. Who knows? Yeah, yeah it could be. Could be nice. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, sometimes you can push more buttons and use your leverage at country even at the international level to get it approved if you really wanted it you know so uh, you get to storm, you know you can negotiate your your government can negotiate with other governments right if you really need it but uh, this may not be that uh, yeah kind of rounding out the trio uh and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this but it it's percolating um arm filing with nasdaq for their ipo that's going to be fun to watch kind of in the interest of some of these mega questions about about yeah. semiconductors finally soft bank uh gets some cash out <laughs> <laughs> they, they, have, they got burned with all these big ideas and uh, this is the one idea which worked for them and uh yeah it's good for SoftBank. But I think it's good for overall industry, you know, putting aside the sovereignty of chips and everything. I think it's a it's a good um, move that all people can participate and in, invest in it, and and then we will see better reporting coming out of them, and uh, we'll help them more accountable on all fronts, you know, like a mm -hmm. public company. Um, you have to operate a little differently, you know. So, uh, yeah it's interesting times definitely. yeah it will be uh was from the standpoint of the news cycle there continues to be a lot you know was there anything else even even though you were sort of in the vmware vortex was there anything else that stuck out to you yeah the one i think maybe we already covered this a little bit that the, the optics of compute, you know, like why everybody is going with NVIDIA because optics matter, even though in Francia uh, chips from AWS or Google's, you know, chips are better. They have to say that we have uh, NVIDIA chips with us if you need it, you know, so because mm -hmm. it's, it's such a big concern that it's like if you don't have 
NVIDIA chips, like, you know, you're not, not a legit, you know, provider anymore kind of thing, you know, so, which is um, kind of sad when knowing what we know, I think, for sure, not I think, I, I'm sure it, the price to performance always wins. It, it's never performance alone. It's never price alone. So price to performance always wins. And um, uh, yeah, this, these NVIDIA chips are not cheap, you know, so. Yeah. It yeah, and then there are meaning of life questions about okay, so you get a really great model trained. How how do you monetize the insights into revenues? That's one of those, you know, for folks who've been on the sales and marketing side of things, you may have hard data, really well vetted data that give that gives you insight in, in markers, looking at the market, your addressable market, but monetizing that effectively and knowing what part of the data drove that, that is tough. That's really tough. And I think, I think that's going to be another part of the next phase of these models is, okay, that's great. You know, a lot more than you did before. What are you going to do with it? And is it going to be, is it going to be effective? I know it's yeah. That, there's so many, uncertainties so another news crossing the wire today is that google amazon and nvidia uh, and other tech giants are investing in hugging face which is a small company in san francisco right so what do you think about this like uh is it is it a safe like a safety bet um like okay just in case they get too big like we we have hand in that pocket as well or Uh, yeah well i think uh the the difficulty of building from scratch in a vacuum kind of that we were alluding to before, if you're wise in covering your bases, so to speak, hugging faces a fantastic play for that um, from a few different angles, you know, from a hyperscaler angle, pro- providing solutions or stacks or a complete product for customers helps a lot. We know that that drives implementation. So it makes sense from the cloud providers, uh, you know, to some extent, you know, even from a semi perspective, there are a bunch in the hugging face, um, you know, party. And, you know, for them, I think the tuning aspect becomes important because, you know, to what extent does any given model that's becoming really popular because it has a lot of good press right now. Uh, to what extent is that going to be effective on what um, what processor? You'll have both angles and yeah, so it's it's definitely one of the places to be. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think they're just playing, playing it safe. I, I don't think this one will become such a huge thing. Of course, like, uh, when communities form the, the easiest community for, to form to start with is open source like in many ways hey get together oh yeah yeah just hype up you know put up a little website and let's say okay like okay let's develop on this you know let's do this let's do that right but then there are so many there's a long tail of hundreds and thousands of open source projects which they never see the light of the day but they're there you know so I think the models are going to be the same way. 
like how 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 do you know that model is well trained or it doesn't have any sort of uh manipulating sort of information or data there as we we talked about earlier like uh some of the models will be public knowledge kind of stuff right it's public models some of your proprietary data based model right turning the models into databases kind of after training kind of thing right which is it's still i'm trying to grapple with that like how often you will train that as we talked about that earlier right so i think um it's still very uncertain like uh, yeah hugging face how they will progress but the last thing i want to mention is like i think i'm about to wrap up is that we really need to i want to get your take on this we really need to i believe to look at the ai generative ai especially specifically to look at that as a runtime versus design time usage of ai like what you can do at design time. At design time, humans are still involved. Like mm-hmm. we are coding and we can use it for coding assistance and as a co-pilot to solve a, a problem and a security issue and all that stuff. As as soon as the, the, the when you go right towards automating it to the nth degree where humans are out of it, that means it's operations, not the creation, if you will, not right, runtime, not design time then it has to be perfectly accurate every time you know and that's that's what it doesn't do right now so Mm -hmm. that if you if you take out all the hallucinations out of a model is that a model at that point you know like it's kind of data but you have dumbed it down with your piling up of um edge cases that you don't want it to do this that you know so then it's like okay it's just you know and number of things right well yeah and it's i mean at the end of the day it's it's statistics this is this is uh you know in in some sense it's really advanced statistical analysis of of tokens you know words are essentially uh converted into they're tokenized and i i'm setting aside the ethical part only because i want to talk about the mechanics words have meaning and they have power and so when they suggest something just from a statistical perspective that's ethically unacceptable we have to deal with that but um from a mechanical perspective we're never the only way to get a true one-to-one 100 percent accuracy with models like this is 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 recall is literal recall and you know to your point at that point we're not extrapolating out probabilities of relationships between concepts or terms anymore um and that i i do think uh limits the value it, it from it can still be helpful but i don't at that point necessarily think that anything that you wouldn't be able to accomplish with really sophisticated database queries. And so I think we're going to see some of this bleeding in and out, kind of like we were talking about earlier between between models and, and database. But uh, I think the hallucinations are a byproduct of that, of, of an issue of probability, not certainty. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You, you spot on actually, you know, like, yeah. Can I be a little more use philosophy? Like last thing, last, last thing. Sorry. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were talking about words, right? 
my aunt passed away uh, a few days back. We went to a funeral and I, I gave her a speech. Uh, and and um, yeah. it, it, I talked about that word, you know, my, my aunt was so soft spoken and her words like very, were very measured all the time. So actually I was, when I was driving there, I was thinking like all these large language models, they actually, um, they base, they, they are based on words, right? And, and before your words, like letters and words, right? So they, they are just looking for the next letter in the word, and then they look for next word to a word and so forth, right? Proximity of uh, context and whatnot. So if I was thinking very deep, like, okay, hey, look at this, the beauty of a word, right? When I comment on your LinkedIn post, I said word, that, that I want to tie it to that. So word is very important, right? Word is the most important thing. <laughs> So you have to study the word, right? Because if you take the world's religious books, they are all written in words. The best science written in words. Mm. So you take any aspects of our life, of our, of our life science, you know, uh, philosophy, everything is in words. Yeah, it is in different languages, but it is set of words. And when ChatGPT came out, like uh, I wrote a small piece, which I need to elaborate on, like what came first, intelligence or or language? Does language make us more intelligent or intelligence makes, gives us better language? So it's a cycle kind of thing, right? So we create new terms and, you know, then we mix these things and we create a phone and we call it phone and the smartphone and chips and this chip and that chip and that many the radio the transistors and all kind of stuff right so um, all that vocabulary actually adds to our knowledge right so if we give the control of our of our vocabulary to computers to a finite number of words and it doesn't create that these models don't create new terminology what happens to innovation I think that's something we need to ponder upon. I think humans are still the best and cheapest supercomputer available. Yeah, and, and yeah I agree. Well, and the the value, I would say the 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 daring, sort of the risky value of the non sequitur. Sometimes innovation has been at, at its finest because something, some some discovery or some assertion was made that seemed like a non sequitur. It seemed like it wasn't connected to what came before. And models are really an aggregate of the relationships that we have taught them to have. And so I'm just agreeing with your point that in innovation in detecting what would be jarring or, or seem incorrect historically ends up becoming truism when we realize uh, that somebody's been onto something. So I don't, I don't think, uh, the value of human cognition is going, is going away for sure. Anytime soon, actually. Yeah. Especially the, the real timeness, uh, real timeness of, um, information is very important. And, and, um, how, how do you infuse that new information into these large language models? It's, it, it's, a, it's a tricky problem to solve. And, um, mm -hmm. And also the IP leak and uh, the, the international laws. And we need to actually, um, we will come to grips with the reality soon about all these 
economics, politics, you know, and, you know, safety and, you know, innovation and the laws kind of thing, you know, like uh, we'll bring that into picture soon, you know, into this world um, of uh, generative AI. Huge, huge open-ended threads that set us up for many, many episodes to come. I think uh, the good news about the industry is that there's going to be quite a bit to talk about for quite a while to come. Uh, Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. As always, we would love your feedback. We welcome it and we're grateful to you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time for episode four for more talk about AI, the edge and cloud computing. So we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to For Instance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, please feel free to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. When we're not recording, you can find Sarbjeet reacting to and discussing current enterprise tech news on Twitter or X. His handle is at Sarbjeet Joal. And you can find me, Sarah Music, on LinkedIn, interacting with tech news or occasionally posting a literature quote. We welcome your feedback and we'll see you next time.